0: at Paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic.
1: All right, well we are on episode, what are we on like episode is like 62 or something like that? This will be
0: 61.
1: 61. And we've got we had her husband, Gary, fed on a few months ago with a wonderful interview, and now we've got the better half of that couple, Belinda, uh, on to, to tell us a little I bit of some sure. and stuff. Uh, Belinda, welcome. I've been following you for a couple of years. You know, I've, I've been really uh, interested in some of the stuff you've uncovered about some of the nutritional uh, foundations that we've sort of, you know, been uh listening to for, for 100 years or more. And so that's something that I think is, it should be widely shared so we have a better understanding of that. And so tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on with you. Uh, I know we, we talked a little bit of this off, off the record about what you've got planning up for the year and then we'll get into some of this stuff.
2: Okay, well, um, thanks for having me on the show. And um, I think it's really important. The last few years I've been just dedicated to clearing Gary's name Um, from the APRA investigation. Uh, He was silenced by the medical board in 2016 for recommending that his patients reduce sugar and process carbohydrates. And we kept trying to work out why on earth he was being silenced. And and it was a vexatious notification by a dietician at the hospital that he was working at. He was looking after people with diabetes complications and they were requiring amputations of bits of their toes, um, four foot, feet, and unfortunately, um, lower leg at times. And it was getting more and more. And Gary thought, what can I do to try and prevent some of this? So he came across the idea of nutrition and um, reducing processed foods, certainly reducing um, a glucose load, was improving patient outcomes. And that was very much against the Dietitians Association of Australia, very much against the guidelines. And as you and I chatted before, these guidelines have become strict rule books, and they're fiercely protected by associations. And I say associations that partner with the food and pharmaceutical industries. Um, It's it's becoming a real concern. And so when Gary is being investigated and then subsequently silenced in 2016 from advocating healthy diet, um, we thought it must be the sugar or the processed food industries that are coming after him and trying to silence this message. But the more I looked into it, I found it was actually about him advocating, not just that, but advocating um, meat and animal protein and fats, which we had no idea about. And in fact, we had no idea that the guidelines were inflexible and were these strict rule books. So then I started doing some research into where I suppose the evolution of the plant-based dietary guidelines. And so 2008, up to 2018, we've, I've been trying to clear Gary's name with my research. Now I'd like to take my research forward to 2019 and help change the guideline rule books, um, really make it about people's health and about choice. And I think the plant based dietary guidelines that are promoting more and more a vegan way of eating, um, I was stunned when I first started to work it out. I thought, well, vegetarian, but no, it's actually if there's a vegan agenda in this guideline creation. And I think it's really important to understand that a plant-based diet is very restrictive and it will create harm for a lot of people. Whereas the diet, if you want to use a terminology, low-carb, healthy fat, it's, it's inclusive. It covers people with cultural differences, with ethical beliefs, religious ideology, but more importantly, it covers health. It's easiest as an omnivore, but it can be, um, you know, worked up. If dieticians truly are the health professionals and the nutrition experts that they are, they can tweak a vegetarian and vegan diet to be supposedly healthy. Why can't they do it with someone who is wanting to be an omnivore or even carnivore for um, irritable bowel syndrome or for their health issues as well? So. I think that's where we need to go forward, and especially diabetes guidelines. I'm horrified by the carbohydrate loading that has been recommended for a very, very long time. So that's my goal for 2019.
1: Belinda, yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody agree will disagree that you know we have to do something different. We have we need to go on a different path, you know, just based on what the results have been of what we've been doing so far. And and and, and maybe. You know, maybe the guidelines are accurate. We can debate about that, and no one and no one can stick to them. And, and and just because of that, they're they're not helpful. I mean, if you can't if you can't do the diet, you're not going to stick to it anyway. But let's let's talk a little bit about history because there's some really interesting historical stuff that kind of kind of allows us to understand why we've gotten to where we are today. And if you don't mind, kind of going into some of the int- interesting history that you've discovered about origins of nutrition and how we sort of came to believe what we believe today if you don't mind going into that
2: well i'll start with a disclaimer that i am not anti-religion i'm not anti-vegan um i'm pro-choice especially about health and so my research has taken me down some really obscure rabbit holes over the last four and a half nearly five years now and I've come across the influence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on our dietary guidelines and their belief in the Garden of Eden diet, which is vegan. And even though it references vegetarianism, if you go right back to the 1860s, when Ellen G. White, who was the prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, she had her first health reform visions back in the 1860s or 1863 specifically. And then from there, um, it... They spoke about vegetarianism, but it was the Garden of Eden diet, and vegan wasn't, it didn't become a, a term until 1944. So even though they talk about vegetarianism, it's actually a vegan diet. It's fruits, nuts, grains, and seeds. I would argue in in some of the work that I've been doing since, that when Ellen G. White um, came up with her health, or had the visions of her health reform um, Thoughts. It was at a time of real um, social disruption. It was a time of a lot of um, contagious diseases. It was a industrial revolution. Everything was sort of changing. People were moving from farms into cities. Men were leaving their families to go and earn money in these industrial um, cities. And so there was gambling. There was prostitution. There's all sorts of things. So it was probably came from a very good place. I would say it did come from a very good place. But it was. The the problem was that the health reformists of the 1800s believed that meat was as much a stimulant, if not more so, than alcohol and tobacco. So their belief that meat caused um, stimulation of baser passions and self-vice, which is masturbation, was the worst sin, was the most heinous sin in the world. And it was about salvation. It wasn't about health. It was... I mean, she described things that even your head would inwardly decay if you um, masturbated. So, And it wasn't just men, it was women and children. And she was really concerned about this and not being able to go to heaven if you were masturbating. So this is the concern that the anti-meat agenda starting back in the 1800s came from that concept. It was never about climate change and it was never about health in the beginning. Her very first book that she wrote was A Solemn Appeal to Mothers. And this Solemn Appeal to Mothers was all about how to stop your children masturbating. And the crazy or amazing thing was, you know, we've heard things about John Harvey Kellogg and his anti-masturbation concepts and how he developed cornflakes. And people have written and spoken a lot about his history. But he was only 12 years old when he started typesetting for L. N. G. White. He typeset her very first book, A Solemn Appeal to Mothers. He was 12 years old being um, immersed in this terrible um, sin and writing about it. He wrote it, he typeset and, and began to edit her work and the work of the Seventh-day Adventist Church until he was 16 and went to college. So I think it gives a little bit of an idea of how much this was considered a sin. So the Battle Creek Center term that they developed, and then he took, he took over when he was 21, um, was all about everything you could do for salvation. And it was, there were was some really great ideas about sleep, about sunlight, about exercise, and about a healthy diet. But unfortunately, their healthy diet was a belief that meat, animal proteins, and animal fats were sinful. So, and that's, I believe, carried on.
1: Hey, um, Belinda, just to interrupt you, where do you think they, why did they believe back in the you know, late 1800s that meat was unhealthful? Where, where, where was that information coming from? Was there something uh, that was was driving that thought? Or was it just the visions that Ellen had?
2: You no, know, well, it was even earlier, um, Sylvester Graham, but even before him, the vegetarian society, it was a, it was a biblical belief. That, I mean, to separate the two, Eastern vegetarianism um, has been around for for millennia um, and their concept of uh, not eating meat was, or reducing meat or not eating a lot of it, was out of respect for animals. They still respected animals in their environment and, and knew the role of animals for the, the um, health of the soil and the health of themselves. And they were never totally anti-all-meat products, so they still might have milk and cheese and eggs, except for there's just a couple of um, the Jain religion don't have any meat. But the Western vegetarianism, which 7th Adventism is part of that, has definitely come from this belief that meat caused um Caused violence, caused um, this base of passion, belief that it, it was all just about a, a stimulant, and and I can't work out why it's why they believe that, but it's it's been documented that Sylvester Graham was one of the first people talking about it, and then Ellen G White. So he was back in the eighteen thirties. It started from there, and he again, or well, his followers developed Graham bread and Graham flour and all of those things again, a really bland um, carbohydrate that would apparently stop people from being so um, stimulated. It's, it's come from there. I wonder if, if you think about it, that meat also around that time, before then it was just pretty much you were on a farm and you were raising your own produce and, and eating it. But around the 1830s, when they started to open up railroads, they started to open up the cities, like people moved, they were able to start transporting meat. And maybe it didn't save as well, but her belief that, or Ellen G. White's belief that it was a stimulant and caused heinous sin, um, it, it appears to have just been a vision that she received from God and her, her belief in this.
1: And so Ellen was one of the, I guess, one of the driving foundational parts of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And so, and then I know that some of her uh, followers, the Seventh-day Adventist followers, went on to found the American Dietetics Association. So can you forward us a little bit in, into time and talk a little bit about that time?
2: Yes. Um, Lena Cooper was a, a dietitian. She studied under Ella um, Keaton Kellogg, who was John Harvey Kellogg's wife. She set up their domestic science, sciences at the Battle Creek Sanitarium and Lena Cooper was very involved. Oh, she also studied under Kate Lindsay. So Ella Kellogg was John Harvey Kellogg's wife and Kate Lindsay was the first um, female doctor at Battle Creek Sanitarium. She started at the same time as John Harvey Kellogg in there. And Lena Cooper was under all three of them and believed in this, the health benefits of the Garden of Eden diet. She started or co-founded the um, American Dietetics Association in 1917 and was hugely influential, not just in the formation of that um, association, but also she, she, um, Ella Kellogg and Kate Lindsay and John Harvey Kellogg all wrote textbooks that went beyond the Adventist um, teachings and went out into the non-Adventist world and were really hugely involved in education, For about 30 years, if not more. And in fact, the the American Dietetics Association, which is now called the American Nutrition and Dietetics or something, the AND, they still do a lecture to Lena Cooper um, every year. And she was a great believer in in the Garden of Eden diet. So this is a fascinating thing. And if you look at the history, um, a guy called Reese Southern started a blog called Let The Meat Meat as an ex-vegan vegetarian and and his health deteriorated greatly. He's done so much research into the actual um, Dietitians Association in America and the influence of the Seventh Day Adventists. He's got incredible references to all of that. So if anyone's interested, well worth checking up, the www.letthemeatmeat website, amazing
1: where, where, so now we're you know, you know, 100, 100 years on from when Lena Cooper was starting the American Dietetics Association. Can we still see uh, the evidence of what she was believing today? And, and does that still, does the Seventh day Adventist Church still have, and the sanitarium still have any sort of influence over what we eat today?
2: I'd say they've got a lot of influence. Um, in America, uh, they the Seventh-day Seventh Day Adventists have become very involved in the uh, Dietetics Association in America, and I would say in Australia. It's interesting, the reason I've found so much about it is that the expert witness in Gary's case um, seemed to come out of nowhere. He was the eminent professor of nutrition um, for the Southeast Asia Pacific region, and I, couldn't work out why someone so huge would come into Gary's case like Gary is an orthopedic surgeon in Tasmania with a catchment area of 120,000 people he had 5,000 people following him on Facebook when he was reported and so it wasn't like lots of people were hearing his message and when the expert witness was this huge person in nutrition I thinking, this is a bit over a bit of overkill here Um, and so I looked into what he'd done and where he was from and everything else and I found Um, Evidence that he had worked for Sanitarium. So, interestingly, Ellen G. White had a vision in the 1800s that she needed to come to Australia, remembering we're a penal settlement, we are a very young uh, society in comparison to lots of other places, and the church probably, no church had probably really established itself very well in Australia back in the 1800s. And so, she had a vision to come to Australia in 1890 and she set up not only the church and schools and a college, she set up a, a, a hospital, printing presses and also um, to match what John Harvey Kellogg had set up with Kellogg's back in Battle Creek, Michigan, she set up sanitarium here in Australia. And sanitarium is a health and well-being food, processed food industry and For some reason, we have been health-washed and brainwashed to believe Sanitarium was looking after our health, and it's Australia and New Zealand. They've been um, integral in developing, I would think, guidelines um, as a cereal, processed cereal industry. They now manufacture something like 420 different vegan food items in Australia and New Zealand, but they also um, have set up in the UK and in China and in India. Um, So it's huge, their influence when I look at the different people who have been involved, and this expert witness worked for sanitarium. Um, That's all been taken down from the internet, of course, now, but I've got the screen grabs. Um, They are involved, and in fact, they put out an article back in August of 2018, written by a number of Seventh-day Adventists who were situated at Loma Linda University, and their article was actually about the global influence of the Seventh-day Adventist message on health, where one of the great comments in it was that nutrition science started with the advent of Seventh-day Adventist nutrition health reform message. So even if you look back to the Adventist health studies, they were started in the 1950s by a guy called Mervyn Harding. He did his doctoral dissertation at Harvard under the guidance of Fred Stair, who has been shown to be quite conflicted with the food industry, a lot of funding. And Walter Willett even mentions back in, I think, 2013, but don't quote me on that date. Um, he wrote an article saying that Harvard University and Loma Linda University have got very close ties ever since that the Adventist health studies started. And if you look at a lot of the research that's done on nutrition, that's why I just kept going down these rabbit holes. I found that it's either been driven by people from Seventh-day Adventist background or belief or the food industry, and they just keep intersecting over and over again. And you have to understand that the Seventh-day Adventist research is being has been quoted as being done to prove a vision. Um, you know, it will prove the vision, not disprove it. They truly believe that Ellen G. White has inspired messages about health. And so they're doing it from, and even it's come driven from purpose. Sorry, here's the microphone. Sorry, driven from a purpose rather than um, a vested interest financially. And that's a very powerful reason for doing research
0: yeah no that's an interesting uh history lesson like do you know like when it got to the point where we decided uh that it it, we needed to have like a food pyramid or something that was recommended by the government when did it kind of jump over to that to where there was this influence coming from the political side as well
2: Definitely 1977 with the McGovern Report and Mark Hegstead um, was very involved in creating dietary goals. If you go back again, the um, in 1942, the Nutrition Foundation um, was set up at Harvard University by five food industries and Fred Stair became the head of the Nutrition Reviews at that time, um, Glenn C. King was the person who set this entire thing up. He was very involved with the food industry, got a lot of funding. And then, as I say, in the 1950s, when they started working with Loma Linda and the Seventh Day Adventist um, research, I would say the McGovern report, I think, probably more influenced by food industry and sugar industry. But the 7th Adventist research would have supported that drive. From the 1970s, you've got to also remember that was a big push to uh, more of a hippie concept. So the, the idea of a more vegetarian, vegan diet was also becoming very popular. And apparently the um, Dietetics Association reached out. Mervyn Harding and um, UT oh, sorry, um, UD Register, who a uh, devout Seventh-day Adventist. He was a, de- UD Register was a devout Seventh-day Adventist dietitian mm. educator. Um, his work was also being um, referenced by the Dietitians Association in America. And they, they were asking for more information. They were asking for resources because the dietitians didn't have a vegetarian or vegan position paper at that time. So Kathleen Zolmer, who was the president of the American Dietitians Association at the time in 1977 was able to start to develop those resources and they used the Seventh-day Adventist message. They they used their their resources and their beliefs to create an ongoing continuing education to teach all dietitians how to support people vegetarian and vegan. Um, And that's been fascinating to see who was involved with the, these position papers and how many were Seventh Day Adventists, how many were involved in the food industry. Interestingly, in Australia in 1997, the position paper and then into the 2000s, the position paper referenced for the Australian Dietitians Association were completely, or well, three of them were from Seventh Day Adventists and one of them was Kellogg's. And so I've been questioning, do our dietitians actually even realise that all references for this vegan and vegetarian position is completely coming from ideology and vested interests? Have they got any idea that this is where it's coming from and that there's no science supporting any other opinion, any other ideas? And the Dietitians Association of Australia continue to call low-carb a fad diet and yet completely... Endorse vegan and vegetarianism—it's it, beyond my um, understanding sometimes.
1: Hey, Belinda, do you—you um, know—do you find that in these influential panels? I know uh, there's a fellow by the name of David Clairfeld who was on the IARC panel, apparently, uh, that was involved in the decision to proclaim by the World Health Organization that red meat was a, you know, type two carcinogen or class two carcinogen and processed meat was a class one. And and one of his complaints was about a third of those committee members were either vegan or vegetarian. And he had called for that disclosure, you know, that potential conflict of interest or bias to be disclosed. That was, you know, denied. That wasn't let out on the report. Do you find that Seventh-day Adventists or vegans and vegetarians disproportionately make up some of these committees? And do you feel that that disclosure should should be available and, and, and made to people as they a, as a produce these studies.
2: Sean, sure, I think this is probably the biggest conflict ever because when I've been looking at a lot of this research, um, it's only that I know that the, um, I don't know how to um, pronounce the Zhehang University, I don't know how to pronounce it properly in China, but it's affiliated with Loma Linda University. So you've got all this information coming out of you know, high profile nutrition experts. And no one, it doesn't say we're affiliated with Loma Linda, it doesn't say we're affiliated with the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And maybe they're not Seventh-day Adventists, but they're aligned with that message and they're, and they're producing this vegan vegetarian um, agenda. You've got you know the Seventh-day Adventist Church here, they talk about Avondale College and then they talk about the Australasian Research Institute If you don't look, you don't know that that's Seventh-day Adventist. Um, Interestingly, in America, you have the Sunshine Act. It's been brought in and you're supposed to um, say who your funding sources are if you're personally funded, but it doesn't always mean that the unit that you're involved in or your university has to declare. So it can be tricky, but at least you're starting to put out some information. A lot of the ties to food industry, and Seventh-day Adventism, because I can do a little bit more research into things, I've only been able to find out from a lot of Australian researchers if they do work with an American. Because in Australia, we do not have a Sunshine Act. So we do not have to um, – researchers don't have to acknowledge any of that. Unless they're on an advisory board, then they do have to declare their conflict of interest. But in that, But that's only financial. And I agree. There's no – um, declaration of vested or personal bias or religious beliefs. And if you think a religious belief is actually coming from an anti-meat agenda that Ellen G. White prophesized back in 1863 to say that meat was a stimulant, she started to change her message up. I don't think this is my personal belief and, and I don't mean to disrespect her prophecy or anything else, but she changed her ideal to then... So it was meat causes violence, meat causes masturbation, then it was meat causes cancer. With no, it, it was a vision, it was no scientific backing to her, meat causes cancer. I would say that, um, you know, it, it's evolved their message. And how can, you know, so then it became processed meat. Was the idea of salt and processed meat purely because not only is red meat, um, sinful, but they had unclean meat, like the Jewish um, beliefs in the Bible that pork and shellfish and things like that are actually unclean and she recommended that you had to burn your clothes and you couldn't touch people if you touched pork or you touched a pig. like it was extreme her her um, prophecies and her um, declaration to her followers that this was it was so unclean that you had to burn your clothes. So processed meat tended to be hams, tended to be pork, tended... So has this all just really come that processed meat is so dangerous to our health because it's unclean or because it's processed? I don't know, I'd be very interested to look more and more into that research as well. Um, and then again, this whole anti-salt message, is that because they salted red meat and they salted porks? You know, when did, when did we start? fearing salt? Our body is made of salt. You know, when when did that agenda come? So there's so many different ways you could start to look. But my research, I guess, has purely been in the last four and a half years to find out why Gary was silenced. Um, I'm fascinated to go further in working out the evolution of this plant-based dietary guidelines.
1: Belinda, I mean, you know, there's people out there who will say, well, you know, these are kind of fringe religious sort of zealots that have some weird religious beliefs. And really how could they have, so much influence, I mean, it's not really about religion. Is there, is there a financial, does, is there somebody has a financial interest you know, in, in sort of steering us towards a plant-based agenda? Is there, is there something beyond just the religious sort of beliefs or is there some sort of money that's also tied up into this stuff?
2: They own the food industry. So you know, in Australia, the Sanitarium is the biggest supplier of cereal, it outsells Nestle and Kellogg's in Australia. Um, and as I say, they produce 420 different products, including they've just purchased the alternative meat company. Um, There's a lot of vegan burgers and beans and whatever else, hugely involved in soy. Apparently, the Seventh Day Adventist claim they started the commercial soy industry. So I'm not talking about fermented soy and things like that that were already begun in Asia and have been around for a very long time but their missionaries went to China and saw these people eating fermented soy and thought, you know, their mission's been to try and find um, an alternative to meat. What can they, what can they offer people? Because Ellen G. White didn't stop people eating meat right at the very beginning. She encouraged people to stop it. But you know, it was about there will come a time when we will have alternatives to meat and meat products and we'll be able to get rid of everything and animal products. And I believe, they believe the time is now. I think they believe that there's enough um, (laughs) fake food out there that they can provide people with alternatives to animal products. and, And there is a lot of talk on the internet that I've been able to uncover to say that the second coming is imminent. And they believe that Jesus is coming back and they cannot be eating meat when they meet him. So I think there's a really big push at the moment to say this is happening soon, the world's getting into a place that's not good and the food industry are going to align with that because it really suits their um, interests and profits as well. The Seventh-day Adventist Church are the second biggest educators of our young people worldwide behind the Catholic Church. So they're also very much pushing their vegan vegetarian thoughts on children as young as three going right through um to uh, university education there they believe that medical evangelism is the right arm of the church so and that um the health message is the entering wedge so a hell of a lot of uh, seventh day adventists go into health profession um they have created a program called the complete health improvement program originally started by Hans steel but taken over bought by sanitarium in australia to put out to the world and it's not just they call it the chip program it's not just chip in churches where they teach their own congregations how to be vegans and teach cooking and whatever else but they take take this then they encourage their church members to take chip into the community and they don't have to necessarily say it's an adventist message they start to talk to people that Healthy vegetarian vegan cooking, and then hopefully encourage them to hear the health message and become Adventists as well. But they also take chip into the corporate. And um, Elder Dexter Shirney, who's now the president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, he took it through Cummins, um, which has got sixty-two thousand employees worldwide. So this this program that um, a lot of Seventh Day Adventists and very high up Seventh day Adventists are taking these programs into workplaces and running those programs. Um, so it's churches, community, corporate health. Um, and now, my concern is what I've been uncovering is that the lifestyle medicine movement, which I believe is the Seventh day Adventist movement, has joined forces with um, exercises medicine that's definitely come from the Coca-Cola influences. They're creating a medical education. And so, it, like you mentioned before, Zach, you know, where did this low fat message come from back in the 1970s? It, it went into medical education so quickly. You know, it became something that the health profession had to learn how bad saturated fat was. And once you teach medical professionals and it goes into the guidelines, it's taken us 50 years to try and start to turn that wheel around. My concern is this belief, this anti-meat agenda, is going to go into medical education, what's already started in America, and the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine are pushing for it to go into our medical curriculum here in Australia. Once it gets into medical curriculum, and our doctors are going to be so excited to think that veganism is going to save not only people, but planet, planetary health, like it's it's a really... Clever marketing um, concept gets into medical education, health education, the dietitians are already completely health washed by it. Um, we're going to be in serious trouble because it's, our health then relies on supplements, it relies on other things. And I think a hell of a lot of people are going to get very, very sick and they won't understand why. And there'll just be more medicating and more band-aiding of sick care. It's a very big concern.
0: Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of HPO Podcast is brought to you by a company named Fat Snacks. That's Fat Snacks with an X. Fat Snacks is a company that makes a cookie that is keto, low carb, and high fat. They use ingredients like almond flour, coconut flour, and butter to make a soft-bake cookie with one to two net grams of carbs and eight grams of fat per cookie. It comes in flavors such as chocolate chip, lemon, and peanut butter this personally is a an option that i've used in the past when i'm traveling when i'm in a situation where i might be busy and on the go for quite some time and just there's a scarcity of what i would consider high quality food options this is a great thing that's easy to pack and bring along and and get you out of a pinch in a situation like that Uh, i also see this as a really great option for parents with children who want to send them to school to practice or to a friend's house and don't want them to overdo some of the more traditional options that are sugar and vegetable oil-based cookies. Uh, If you'd like to check out this product, please head over to their website at fatsnacks.com, and with the promo code HPO, you can get 5% off your first single order or 10% off a subscription order. Also, if you get a chance, head over to Instagram and Facebook and give them a follow or a shout-out at Snacks. And let them know that HPO is very grateful for their support. Now, back to the show. Belinda, I'm not sure how much you looked into this side of it um, when you kind of looked at uh, just the history of all, all of how we got to where we were. Well, did you see anything about like what was the the like meat, dairy, and um, like egg industries doing at this time? Were they counteracting this in any way? Or?
2: Absolutely. I think... Honestly, I don't think any industry doesn't try to promote its own um, value and worth. Um, I can't believe that the egg and the, you know, if you think about the farming, um, livestock, animal products and animal produce must be gasping for air because to, to create fake food, to grow crops, Is so much cheaper and so much more cost-effective. I'm, I'm really concerned about the factory farming of animals. I think it's it's a it's a terrible thing, and it's been around. You know, it started back in the early 1900s. Um, Wiley was pushing for the Pure Food and Drug Act back in 1906. It finally got passed. But he said, even though the the um, animal, the livestock industry, were really pushing, meat and livestock industry were pushing. Um, and and probably not had all the best practices because suddenly they were inundated and had to provide foods for so many people. Coca-Cola was the most um, destructive force in getting things passed. And even though the Food and Drug Act got passed in 1906, 1907, he could not stop Coca-Cola influencing um, decisions being made about additives into foods and things so he ended up walking away from his position as the head of the, um, the area, deciding and trying to change um, and influence things. Then he ended up working for a women's health magazine because he thought he had more influence on women's choices than they were at the time, the people providing the food for their families by working through a women's health magazine than trying to do anything through government and changing policy. So yes, I've found information, confidential um, online documents where the cereal industry here in Australia had been meeting, and they've actually been paying the Dietitians Association of Australia $23,000 a year to influence, protect, and actively defend cereal, grain, sugar messaging, and they've named my husband as targeted for active defence, his low-carb message. I found information about the nuts for life. I mean they target health professionals and they want to do more and more research to show that you don't get allergies from nuts. And, you know, there's not a, I don't believe there's a single group out there that wouldn't be trying to show that their produce is good and funding research and whatever else. But my concern is that the, the, v, the funding for vegan foods and fake foods it surpasses it and the, and the amount of money you can make from um, people have shown a, a grain of you know, wheat crops, uh, thousands of percent higher in your profit margin than you could ever get from meat. Um, and, and my concern is just purely looking at nutrient density and, and considering where we can take this into regenerative farming and, and protecting the soil in Australia We've signed the Paris Climate Agreement to get rid of ruminants. Um, they're already working on getting rid of 30% of our ruminants. It's not about getting rid of them. Eastern vegetarianism do not get rid of their animals. They use them um, to preserve the soil and, and for health. So it's a, it's a bizarre concept where we're moving towards in Western world and we're taking that into the Eastern and that's scary. <laughs>
1: Blinnett, I don't know if it's just me or maybe I'm more acutely aware of this, but it does seem like there's been an uptick in the sort of the anti-low carb, anti-ketogenic, anti-meat uh, rhetoric, and it seems like it's pervasive and it's being, uh, you know, you see it everywhere now. You see it on buses. It's been stuff.
2: around. It's been around forever.
1: Is, um, it, it, is it, You think it's you think it's increased as of recent, or am, or am no. I just more aware of it?
2: Um, Atkins tried back in the 90s or even earlier, Um, do you know the Atkins diet was even, um, it was illegal for a doctor to prescribe or even talk about in Australia um, in the 1990s, early 200s. They had, uh, the government campaigned and especially in Victoria, it actually became illegal. Um, That's how frightened government, corporates, um, whomever, Seventh-day Adventist church is of this low-carb message. And I would say the only thing that we're seeing so much of it now, seeing the push for um, a vegan diet and anti-meat, is social media. Um, if Atkins had had an opportunity, I mean, he sold so many books and so many other things. Social media now connects a lot of people. The concern is that the algorithms are changing. Um, Google is driving down the low-carb message, or or the vegan promoting people are. Um, Paying for advertising to attach to the low carb message and this big push about veganery and and all flexitarian it's all softening the message to the masses and, I, and without being paranoid or whatever else i think the fear of the anti-meat message they've been able to manipulate it so well and tell people it's all right you can take supplements you can do this you can do that but the thing that people don't mind dropping meat out of their diet is because they can still have alcohol. They can still have junk food. They can still have sugar. They can still have all these other things that they don't understand the health implications of this health washing, brainwashing, whatever else. They don't understand how important animal products and and, um, meat is in our diet because they don't feel like they're missing out. You know, where, where it's such a commercial world now and they hear sound bites that we can save the world, we can save animals, we can do this, we can do that. And it's a, it's a really clever thing. Gary worked out that um, sheep produce more methane than cows. So he has his hashtag called Innocent Cows. But going back even further, termites, centipedes, millipedes and scarab beetles produce even more methane than a cow. And there's no anti-those running around. I think this targeting of ruminants and, and cows in particular is coming from a very bizarre place. I've been doing some work with Frederick Leroy and um, you know, it's. I, I think the Seventh-day Adventist message that has come through very, very strongly and is being taken into this lifestyle medicine movement, which is going around the world. Um, you don't have to be, or you would not even understand that it was from, Seventh-day Adventist message, a lot of people say when they go into the lifestyle medicine um, uh, conferences and different things, they're starting to understand that there's more of a push to vegetarian, vegan um, talk. But going along to those events, started by an Adventist called John Kelly, who has done it for all, again, all the right reasons for things that he totally believes in, um, the health message and and where he sees health going, um, it's about de-prescribing, and it's about improving health outcomes. But he started it in America and we've got this um, Australasian Lifestyle Medicine Institute, a society, sorry, Australian Society of Lifestyle Medicine in Australia. They're the big pillars of the Seventh-day Adventist movement and, and also in Asia, all the board members there of the Lifestyle Medicine that Seventh-day Adventists are aligned to Seventh-day Adventism. As it goes out further, you can create a lifestyle medicine association anywhere in the world, and there's certain guidelines and rules, and and they'll support that. It doesn't say anything about Adventism, it doesn't say anything about diet, It just well, as a vegan diet, but I think the influence of those, once people go to those conferences, they can sign up for exams, they can sign up for a board certification, they can sign up for all these other things. Nobody looks. So even the, um, the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine they don't understand that if people come to those conferences and sign up for those further things, they're starting to get into the Adventist message because the people who are writing the exams, the people who are writing the the board certification, the people at the back end, I would say nearly every single one of them and probably every one of them, but I can't, not many people go out there saying they're 7th day Adventists or they work for Coca-Cola, but pretty much every single... Or a day, eighty-five percent of the people that I've searched are either Seventh Day Adventists involved in the food industry, or specifically Coca-Cola, and writing exercises, medicine programs. So this is this is um, a Move More, Eat Less Meat agenda. And then again, the the LMed, which is um, the Lifestyle Medicine Collaborative, is this exercises, medicine, lifestyle medicine, writing the medical curriculum and Stanford University who are running it at the moment even wrote that um, they're so excited about teaching medical students to cook. Sean, you would know, as as a GP, when are you ever gonna have time to teach someone to cook? And if you did, who's gonna pay? I mean, we've tried running a nutrition for life business and tried to make it viable. We were just giving money away. Um, So they're teaching doctors to cook and it's not using any red meat whatsoever. And a little bit of chicken and fish. Even the Stanford University, in their article, stated they used it as a garnish, occasionally. Right? Teaching doctors to cook and use, you know, poultry and fish as a garnish. So it's already at quite a few of the universities in America, and they're planning to run it medical worldwide medical education.
1: Melinda, what do you? I mean, you know, it's a little disheartening to see the resources that are being poured into a message that you know obviously you myself and probably zach disagree with um what you know what's it going to take to turn this around is it possible to turn this around or Are we are we just going to resign ourselves to we're all going to get on board the uh you know the supplement uh, soybean train or are we or is it possible to you know to, to do something and what what can the average person do that might be listening
2: the average person i think is It's just, it's questioning, it's being noisy, it's challenging, no matter what um, social media platform that they're on, I've got a little hashtag saying, be noisy with me, Um, but it's a really tough world out there. And and I've been, Gary and I have both been subjected to some very nasty trolling. So, you know, it's also keeping yourself safe. Um, We've got a thick skin now and we've just gone. I think when you talk about all of this thing with respect, and integrity, you've got the confidence to go forward. And it's not, about, um, it's not about being nasty to anybody who's having these conversations. It's trying to have a discussion with people about, you know, looking at two different ways of this argument and, and questioning where, I think, questioning where the plant-based dietary guidelines have come from. And if they've truly come from vested interests and ideology, then we should all be challenging. It's not about health. So can we raise awareness of this? My objective here in Australia, but as someone who's got fairly tough skinned and been out there um, understanding the rule books um, is just going forward and trying to let health professionals know where this is coming from. I think as, as a listener, if you are not a health professional, it's, it's about understanding that you can empower yourself at this point in time Take back control of your health. Listen to some of the people who are, I would think, thought leaders in the low-carb movement and understand that it truly is um, an amazing place to be because you can be supported on, despite, or not despite, depending on your cultural, ethical, religious and health um, reasons for going into this space. And, and that's the exciting thing about it. And I'd be very wary of a plant-based guidelines and plant-based advice some people can do really well on it and i'm not questioning that most people can't um and i think it's up to individuals to work out what's best for them and not be dictated to and to be very wary of this um, vegan movement that is processed processed vegan food is exactly the same as processed non-vegan well it's all vegan isn't it um processed food you know Eating, um, thinking about locally sourced, seasonal, fresh produce as much as you can, supporting farmers that are helping our soil and our planet, planetary health. I mean, that my best advice is to do what's best for you and what you believe in, but don't follow rule books because I don't think that they're fair.
1: Do you think there is? Uh, I know you talked about your Facebook. You know how the algorithms are being adjusted so that low carb or a you know an anti plant based message seems to be. You know, maybe the search engine optimizations are changing so that those things aren't highlighted anymore. Do you think there's an active uh, push out in, in in where we get our information, either social media or the other like things like Google, where uh, the 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 message for you know, non-plant-based diet options is being altered.
2: Absolutely. And that's the only way to silence our message. Um, I I was chatting to you before, Sean, that last year, just literally 12, 18 months ago, but 12 months ago even, I'd often get 100,000 people looking at a post that I might put up um, on my Facebook page, which is Belinda Fecchino Fructose, taken over from Gary Fecky no fructose when he was silenced um and you know we would regularly get really big numbers and now it would be lucky to get 15 or 20,000 people or I'd be lucky to get 15 20,000 people come and look at one of my posts uh, they're wanting obviously for people to pay and sponsor them so if I sponsor a post it could go higher sometimes I still get a lot depending on the information up to 40 45,000 but nowhere near I could have Gotten 100,000 from nearly every post I put up um, a year ago, and I don't think it's that people are less interested because my engagement is still really big. I'd still get as many likes and as many shares, just not the, the reach. And on Google, um, we've definitely heard from some of our um, low carb um, contemporaries, people in this space, that they're going right down in the search engine optimization and they're really struggling to get to the top of pages. In a Google search, Gary was Googling the best sources of iron the other day on Google and all it came up with was plant-based, he didn't even mention meat. Um, I think there's a really big push to change search. And uh, we've got our website, um, I support Gary. Gary's also got a no fructose one, which he was working full-time and fighting APRA and investigations and everything else. So it's not the cleanest Um website but there's a lot of information if you're prepared to trawl through it Um, and I think that is the concern we need to get people really invested in our message and and if they want to hear about it they need to make the effort to keep coming back to these pages and Malcolm Kendrick got deleted off Wikipedia Um, there's definitely a push I believe from the vegan movement and I and I think it's because they're worried about us they're worried about the message that we're putting out because again it's done with integrity it's done with honesty it's done with science and when you talk about health and nutrient density and Mike kendall's work with nutrient optimizer um you know where do we get our nutrients from and it's from animal products there's so much in it you have to take supplements if you're a vegan so I think we just keep being noisy, Sean. And, and hopefully people are are able to take that control of their health.
0: Yeah. We've talked about that in other episodes too, where it's like, it's kind of the, you get the pro and the con of how easily you can spread and gather information with the internet and social media and stuff. And for one, it's like, it allows you to connect with people who have a message, that is is different than the what the mass media is kind of producing, but it can also be tricky to find out, you know, well who's 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 right, who's wrong, who's got an alternative motive, and all that other stuff. Um,
2: it's, it's it's not even social media either, Zach. Um, we Gary's been exonerated from um, being silenced by the Medical Board of Australia. He has gotten a written apology, and no, we had. The two local papers put a little bit in their paper. One was the Frontline. Nothing's been picked up in the whole of Australia. You know, how much influence has the food industry got on advertising in our media? We we can't get it anywhere. Gary keeps being put into newspapers about Billy Connolly and, and um, diagnosing his Parkinson's disease. That gets national news and everything else. And yet something so big, what Gary is talking about and why and his investigating, nothing in even print media. So it's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, like I said, it's a little concerning to me. You know, I just wonder, if, you know, at some point, you know, maybe some of these social media companies will say, well, we're just going to close your account because we don't like your message. We see that uh, with Patreon, you know, we see that with some other, uh, you know, I think even things like PayPal. I think there's people that sort of don't toe the, the party line, whatever that may be you know they they their their stuff is being suppressed and i think that is uh, you know kind of a freedom of speech type of, type, of, type of thing which is which is unfortunate you know we may all be on some sort of alternate platforms at some point uh and so i think it's uh you know something to be aware of for sure i mean right now i mean it seems like we are we're, we're able to have a free dialogue uh And I think what I tell people is to get out there and, and and like you say, make some noise. I mean, the vegans have this thing called direct action everywhere, where they're, you know, every chance they get, they're going into the grocery stores and restaurants and annoying people and you know harassing farmers and butchers and and whatnot. And you know, unfortunately, it almost is at to the point where we, you know, you have to do the same thing, uh, you know, to to get your message out because ultimately, you know, when you ask people what the truth is you know, most, no one really knows, I mean, it's what you hear the most. And so, you know, it's like a political, uh, you know, it's like a, it's like a political battle, you know, like when you look at the, look at like one of these American uh, presidential elections, it's about who can yell the loudest, who can get their message out to the most people, regardless of what the truth is. And I'm not taking sides in politics, but I mean, that's just the way the world works. And right now, uh, this plant-based message is, is very loud. And uh, I think it is unfortunately not the right message
2: it's very very loud and I think government we had one of our politicians in Australia last year have a media release about how important fiber was from a a um, research that was fully funded by Kellogg's and it even had it on his media release you know far out so I I think um as Henry Wiley back in 1907 said you know Government is swayed by dollars. Um, and where's this going? Gary talks about um, civil unrest. And, you know, is it, do we do the gandhi sort of thing? And we just do like a salt march? Or we just sit down. Do we just not listen or do we, I don't know. It's, it's a really interesting thing going forward. I think the climate change agreements you saw what's happening in France at the moment and 50,000 protesters and Greenpeace is suing Macron and the government for not keeping up with their um, their agreement to the climate change credits that they're supposed to be doing well in Australia we've got the most we've we've agreed to a lot of things Um, and I was reading that 30 percent of our ruminants are going to be gone in the next very very short time because it's part of our agreement to the paris climate um, conference and you think this is huge when did we make the decision that ruminants it's not that we eat less meat it's that we get rid of them um because of the methane and these are from people who are flying all over the world having meetings and how much methane is being used in every plane trip this is from people who are living to excess, I know all of these people who are making these rules are billionaires. And what right do they have to make rules about what we can do? I don't know. I think it's quite a, it's quite um, concerning.
1: Yeah, it's almost as though, and, and this, I know Marie Antoinette, you know, and whether that was falsely attributed to her was, you know, the old starving peasants just let them eat cake. And we're almost in that same situation where we're like,
2: I, I would think, um, you know hardly, let, yeah, let, let, them, let them eat soybeans
1: yeah let them eat soybeans and and, and soybeans. i think that's what and we've got and i and i wonder how much people are going to take at this point with the knowledge that we have enough people out there saying look you can't take away the most vital nutrition you know what i believe uh it's a human uh, well-being and not expect that to go badly i mean you know the all need, is, what's yeah. that
2: the problem is so many people are addicted to sugar.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that they feel like they're not being, like let them eat cake, they don't feel like they're being well, missing out on anything. <laughs> this isn't health, you know, it's very scary. I think that's a great analogy. Let them eat cake, that's exactly what they're, they, it seems to be that sort of message. Let them eat processed food, but we won't, do they? <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, we, we've we gotten, uh, you know, we clearly see as animal fats have gone out of the, the human diet, it's been replaced with processed food. I mean, that's, we see, we see as the animal, you know, the butters and the uh, uh, tallow has gone down. Uh, the calories that we get from that has been almost completely wholly replaced with vegetable oils. And then, you know, the rest of the processed foods that go with that, the, the sugars and the, and the refined grains. And I mean, that's, that's what will continue to happen. That's what's happened historically over the last several decades. And I, and I fully expect that to continue. The more animal nutrition you take out of the diet, it's not going to be replaced with kale and, you know, uh, navy beans. It's going to be replaced with just more processed food. And I think that is really where we're headed, unfortunately. It's a bit scary. And it's a bit, it makes me sad as a, as a father of you know four little kids said i don't I don't want them to, to live in a world where they don't even you know a lot of kids these days grow up and they don't they have no concept of what being healthy is they never experience health from day one I mean they start out on some you know soybean and corn syrup infant formula and immediately switched over to some high sugary uh, you know cereal grains and and stuff like that and then and then it's you know, then it's processed foods from then on out and so we we have entire generations that don't even know what health is, and and but that's the normal it's, that experience has been normalized, unfortunately.
2: And you know, it was Harry W. Miller who was a Seventh Day Adventist who invented infant soy formula, and um, went to the AMA in America for over ten years trying to convince them that the soy formula was better than cow's milk. And someone finally said to him, apparently, this is from what I've read, that don't come to us saying it's better than cow's formula come to us saying that it will help the six percent of people six percent of babies who are allergic to cow's formula and so that's what he did the next year and it got accepted by the ama and so it was a Seventh day adventist again trying to find an alternative to to an animal product animal protein animal um fats and he invented um infant soy formula and purely salvation you know this this is it um he might have thought it was also a healthy option he harry miller was a missionary in china he opened 19 sanitariums so 19 seventh-day adventist hospitals in china to every single one of them he ran nursing courses and taught nurses and and obviously they taught the nutrition concept but he added a soy plant to every single one of them and so he processed soy at all of these nineteen sanitariums for Asian people to eat seventh day adventist approved foods it's um quite amazing
1: it's it's just kind of fascinating Blit, all the stuff that, that that's out there historically and it's uh, you know a little bit eye opening to hopefully people that haven't heard this stuff before i I've seen some of your stuff and, and you know familiar with quite a bit of it but know there's still so much more beyond that and it's just you know it's almost like watching a a car crash in slow motion that you're you're, you know you're helpless to do anything against or or maybe you're not helpless but it it seems that way you're watching just watching society sort of walk towards a cliff there and you're like you know don't go that way but uh anyway uh i wish you and gary a wonderful 2019 i hope to meet you guys in person at some point um you know, and it's been an honor having you on. And thank you so much. And tell Gary hello. We, we, we certainly enjoyed our time talking with him. Hopefully he's having a, a good time out there in Tasmania, seeing his folks and doing what he can. And he's doing a great job as well. Uh, Belinda, let, let us know how we can get a hold of you and, uh, you know, where, where to find you, find more information that you've been putting out. And, Zach, if you've got any last-minute sort of things you want to ask.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for coming on, Belinda. This will pair nicely with our interview with Gary from before. And, and hopefully down the road, we can get both of you on at the same time and check in and see how things are going in 2019. Um, but yeah, if there's any resources or info or um, platforms that you'd like to share, definitely do so. And I can put some stuff in the show notes as well so people can, can click in.
2: Thank you so much, Sean and Zach. I've really appreciated the opportunity to um, talk about, say, four and a half years of research. Um, it, what what we've spoken about is just a tiny bit as you would be aware and i wrote a I I spoke at um, the low carb universe in Majorca in last year and i've done an article on that it's very long it takes about 50 minutes to read so be prepared grab a coffee mm. um that's on the www.isupportgary.com website um i think the funniest thing was you know, APRA never expected us at that. APRA is the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, never expected me to start a website saying I support Gary. Um, and so that has been the people on social media, the people following us from around the world, their support has helped clear my husband's name and give this opportunity for us to move forward advocating the benefits of low carbohydrate healthy fat principles for the next little while and we're going to take the most of every opportunity we can. So my research, a lot of that is on that website. As I said, Gary's got a website that he hasn't attended to in a long couple of years because he's just been so busy. Um, But that's nofructose.com. We've also, Gary's got all of his health talks up on YouTube. Um, And I can't remember the actual address, but Gary Fecky YouTube, you'll find them on there. And he talks about, Everything from um, my research through to is fruit good or bad for you? He talks about type two diabetes management and his model of um, what is his um, metabolic model of or well, nutritional model of health, metabolic health. Sorry, can't remember the name of it. He'll hate me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So all the way through, he discusses everything to do with the work that he researched for many years and has found improved his own health. Um, Sean, you would know exactly as well, you know, Gary has got cancer and for him, a plant-based diet would be a disaster. His tumor feeds on glucose. His PET scan it up like a Christmas tree. I was told in 2009, we were told that there was nothing more they could do. He'd been on chemotherapy for nine years, had radiotherapy. And, you know, for someone to find something that's so amazing for his health, and be able to come off 10 medications and be the healthiest he's been in so long. Um, we, uh, we just want to keep putting this message out. So as I say, the I spot Gary's got a bit of some health things on it, but a lot more of my research, whereas Gary's no fructose page probably has more of the science.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, Polina. You guys have a nice, nice day down there in summertime and <laughs> you're part of the world. <laughs> thank
2: you so much i really appreciate it
1: all right I'll you see see you. thank
0: you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with hosts dr sean baker and zach bitter if you enjoyed the show please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites links to those can be found in the show notes also if you have any questions or comments please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com Thanks again for tuning into the show.